0: I guess my main mission in my old age is to say it's not all about economics, so we've got to think of, of other ways of of achieving what needs to be done that breaks this sort of paradigm. Well, if it doesn't pencil out, if it's not more profitable, if it doesn't work economically, then we can't do it, so we don't even look for alternatives, we don't even try. Um, and And, you know, I tell people that that is the fundamental cause of the problem. I could go down the list of every major problem we're confronting, and it's because we give a priority to economic efficiency, productivity, profitability, and we end up compromising our relationships with each other, our social values. We end up destroying the natural resources, degrading the soil, and and we do all of that in the name of economic progress. That's not progress.
1: Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project, a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock. You just heard from John Eichard, agricultural economist and professor emeritus at the University of Missouri. John speaks to a very timely situation in this interview. Just this past week, the dairy brand Horizon, which is owned by the $25 billion multinational corporation, Dannon, canceled 90 contracts with organic dairy farmers in the Northeast. So Horizon is no longer working with dairy farmers in the states of Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and eastern New York. It's simply more cost-efficient to get milk from the giant 10 to 20,000 cow dairies in the arid west where precious groundwater is being drained from the aquifers for hay and grain and the facilities have been caught not putting their cows out to pasture as is required by organic law. These giant dairy facilities are also using a loophole in the organic lot to source conventional calves rather than organic calves. The cancellation of contracts by Horizon in New England is simply devastating to those dairy farmers, many of which have been in the dairy business for generations, never mind the economic and social impact on their communities. Listen for John to explain how big industry players like Dannon use methods like overproduction to position themselves to put small farmers out of business and control the market. Ironically, Dannon is a B Corporation, supposedly committed to environmental and social sustainability standards. This is the first part of a two-part interview because John and I had a long conversation. I really wanted to press him so we could truly understand how small farms can be more successful in spite of so much consolidation in agriculture. This has been the trend in conventional agriculture and is now impacting organic. Now let's jump into the first half of my conversation with John Eichard. I'm speaking today with John Eichard. John is one of the most eloquent proponents of family farming and sustainable agriculture. He's Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics at the University of Missouri, and author of several books and essays, including A Return to Common Sense, Small Farms are Real Farms, which is right up here in my corner. I love that book, John. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, and you, you speak all over the country, too, uh, until COVID. Now you're speaking on Zoom all over the place, I imagine. Yeah. John, you're a personal hero of mine, well, and you. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. So hello.
0: Yeah, hello. I'm, I'm honored to be uh, with this, uh, this very prestigious collection of people you have put together for the virtual conference this year. So thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing when you talk about uh, soil health, how many people feel that, that you know we've got all that in common, so we can come together around that right. issue for sure. Right. So uh, you, you write a lot about the decline of family farms and rural communities affiliated with that, and I'm wondering how you became so passionate about those issues in your life.
0: Well, I, I grew up on a small family farm, a small dairy farm, and spent the first 17 years of my life there. And this was back in the days when we actually didn't even have electricity or running water when I first started out on the farm, milking cows by hand and this sort of thing. So I was, I grew up on a family farm, two brothers and two sisters and my mom and dad and so on. And so I really had a good taste of that. And then when I went into high school, I was in the, the Future Farmers of America at that time. So I was active in there. As, as I make presentations from now and then, I say I... I believed in the future of farming. That was in the creed, you know, believe in mm-hmm. the future of farming with a faith born, not of word, but of deed, achievements won by past and present generations of farmers, promise of better days through better ways. So I, I really bought into all of that. But the small farm that we were, they were on the small dairy farm, there wasn't room for anybody except one of us to stay there. And my younger brother, all he ever wanted to do was farm. And the rest of us all had other things that we could move on to. But I never got away from that. And I went to college at the University of Missouri and got my degree in agricultural economics. And I went out and worked in private industry for a while thinking, you know, the thing I ought to do is go out and make some money in this sort of thing. And it, it, didn't, it didn't fit me. Uh, and I came back to graduate school then to get eventually got my PhD in agricultural economics. But my motivation through all of that was this basic idea that what we were doing within the university system was there to help the farmers. It was there to to realize this vision that I'd had as a FFA member of better days through better ways. And so I I, I believed in that all the way through. And then I got a job after I got out of uh, graduate school. I took a position in extension where I would be spending, I always had at least half of my time, even though I taught and did research, at least half of my time was out working with farmers and people within rural communities. So. So I, I I never really gave up on that. And that's one reason I gave up on industrial agriculture. I, I saw that it wasn't doing those things that I'd been told that it would do and the things that I believed it would do for so long. But I, I've, I think I've always been connected to that. And if I hadn't grown up on a farm, in a, in a, a good family farm, um, it, it would probably have been much more difficult for me you know to be a critic of the industrial agricultural system. So that's that's where I am and that's where I've continued and I still believe there's a there is a good future in in small to medium-sized family farms but not in the industrial approach to farming. In sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture. All of those approaches to agriculture that are basically management intensive to begin. with. That's what makes the farm smaller, but but where the the farm is a way of life as as well as a way to make a living. I I think that's the critical thing that a lot of people are missing in organic and regenerative agriculture. If it's just another way to make money, we end up right back where we are with industrial agriculture, the large commercial operations, and we see a bit of that in the organic that's, I think that's the reason the real organic uh, kind of movement came about is because of industri- the kind of industrial system moving in when it's about profit. And then we got to recognize that if we just continue to try to maximize economic efficiency and productivity, we'll end up right back where we started. The, the, I'm an economist, agricultural economist, and the, the economy is, is to be a means. To, to some greater end. Uh, money has no value except what you can get with it. And if you don't know why you need it, and what you're gonna use it for, I can tell you, you'll never have enough. But we have to recognize that, that the economic part of regenerative agriculture, organic farming, sustainable agriculture, the economic part, is, is to give us the means to live the kind of life we wanna live as farmers, to take good care of the land, to be good neighbors, and, and to be stewards of, of the land and community so that those people of future generations will have opportunities equal or better than we have today. So it, it can't true. just be about economics.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, John, uh, because when we were fighting for the integrity of organic uh, at the National Organic Standards Board level and the National Organic Program, we were often told you know, that this is they're just fighting for a way of life. And that's that shouldn't be considered when we're defining what organic means. And so I'm curious, you know, you grew up on a dairy farm. What was that farm like? What was that way of life? What are we at risk of losing? Yeah. Uh, how, many, how many cows were you milking? How, how much land yeah. was there?
0: We had, uh, I think there was about uh, uh, 200 acres on the farm. And we, we were, when I was growing up, we were milking, Uh, Maybe 25, 26 cows, all of us kids that were large enough, we all had cows to milk and cows all had names and and this sort of thing. And and I I think it's important to remember, too, that that my dad only had a fourth-grade education. His dad had died when he was in the fourth grade, and he was the the oldest. He had an older brother, but he had some uh, uh, hip problem that he couldn't work too much. And so my dad left school in the fourth grade, and then during the Great Depression, he was able to to buy a farm. He had worked on, at farm work. That's all he ever did. But he had, uh, you know, during the Great Depression, people were losing farms. And he was able to, to buy a farm that someone else had lost during the Great Depression. He bought it from an insurance company or railroad or something that had taken it over. And, and my dad on, on that farm, he was able to, to buy that farm and pay for it. it buying it through the Great Depression with a fourth grade education. <laughs> I mean, that is really amazing. It amazes yeah. me more now than it did at the time. But that's what I was growing up on. I was a small farm. And uh, he continued, but my brother stayed on the farm. And then my brother uh, kind of followed, you know, what I was doing when I was in school. He was on that same pattern of, of saying, well, we got to get larger because we got to make more money. We got to make the farm more efficient. And he got up to where he was, Trying to milk about a hundred cows at one time on that same on that same farm, buying all of his feed and total mixed ration, he was about to go broke. You know, he's told me this several times. He was about to go broke, and he he decided that that what he was doing, like about the same time I did in the university system, that it wasn't working. It wasn't going to work, and so he switched over and started going toward a grass-based dairy operation, and he focused on reducing his cost of production and, you know, just making, living a simple life, but a good life and reducing his cost of production. And, and the, the latter years he was on the farm, he was milking back down to milking about 50 cows. And he told me at one time, every year he was milking fewer cows and getting less milk and making more money. <laughs> and I've told people over and over again, when you quit trying to make money and, and start farming in a way that you really want to farm, in all probability, if that's what you're really intended to do, that you'll find some way to make money, but you may even make more by not trying to make it than then you do the other way. But I, I always had, I grew up on that uh, that farm, and we all worked, and an important part about a family farm, a small family farm, is, is that we were contributing to the farm. We were milking the cows. My dad would give us a a cow rather than an allowance as we grew up into our teenage years we we knew if the cows didn't milk we didn't have money you know so he we gave you where opportunity money came from. but
1: you had some work to do <laughs> yeah we had some work to do
0: and, and we yeah. had to work for all of that but but we we knew what it take you know where money came from you had to do something productive you had to work for it but that 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 we were making a contribution to paying off that farm Every yeah. fall, that'd be the farm payment that had to be made before almost anything else. But you grow up with a sense of self-worth. You, you, you grow up with the understanding that what you do matters, that you're not just a burden on your parents, although I'm sure all kids are to a certain extent, <laughs> but that we were actually contributing to the well-being of that family. And, and what I've recognized since, and I often say that, a, that on a true family farm... The, the family and the farm are part of that same whole. And, and that family on a different farm or anywhere else would be a different family. And that farm with any other family on it would be a different farm. And, yeah, and that's the connection we have to the farm. And my brother yeah. uh, stayed on that farm and continued to make a living there. He retired uh, when he got was able to get Medicare. Then he, he quit milking cows, but he had beef cows. And he, he actually just died this last uh uh, I, I, no, early December, I think it was, this, oh, past, this past year. But yeah. as I said, you know, he, he lived the life he wanted to live and had a good life. He would take yeah. vacations with his children. And in the latter years, he could hire somebody to take care of the farm. And it was still this small family farm. So always in the back of my mind, when I was talking about family farmers, I, I had an example of the farm that I grew up on. And my brother was still there and he was making it work and it wasn't anything outstanding or fancy but I knew that he had had a good life there he raised his kids there he was able to send both his his um, pay get both his children through college and he, he didn't have an affluent life but he had a good life there on a small family farm I knew it could happen yeah. and then also make a good point. all the people I worked with in extension i had been all over the country and I always worked with the small farms I coordinated the sustainable agriculture program at the University of Missouri with the small farms program at Lincoln University, which is the the historic black institution there. So we integrated those two programs, the small farms, family farms, sustainable agriculture. So other than the 15 years I spent sort of as a promoter of industrial agriculture, I've never left family farming, which made it easier for me to come back to sustainable agriculture. And sustainable agriculture was like the old balanced farming program at the University of Missouri that they had back in the 40s and 50s, and it was about balancing, making a good living, that's, but with soil conservation, that's when they were building a lot of terraces and things of that nature, and, mm-hmm. and the quality of life in the family. It was all about so you could buy washing machines <laughs> so you didn't have to hang the clothes on the line all the time, and that you could put uh, plumbing in your house, you could have indoor plumbing and this was a part of extension. I thought sustainable agriculture that's that's what we ought to be doing for family farms.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there are just as many people that, if not more, that want to join the farming community right now that are young and hardworking and smart. And they can't access that land or they can't access capital in order to really implement their dreams. It just seems so out of touch now. That is a difference.
0: Right. And we we need to, you know, we need to find ways to allow them to do it. I've had people tell me kind of about the conventional, what I call industrial agriculture sector. Well, Nobody really wants to work anymore. I don't think that's the case at all. I run across young people at these conferences that are willing to work and willing to go out and work hard, but you've got to be able to you know, they've got to be able to make the economic piece of it, uh, you know, work, and you you can't buy land in this kind of speculative agricultural land market that we're likely to have going into the future. So we've got to find other ways. You know, there's people that are going together and having a collective, buying land collectively. There's land trust where people are coming in. There's all sorts of, of good things that are going on, but I don't see anything that really that really solves that, that problem at this particular point in time. But yeah. I think there are opportunities that people can go to, but if you look at the various alternatives, just going out and buying a piece of, of traditional agricultural land, uh, I, I I don't see any way that you're going to make that work on anything other unless you can buy a lot of land. But I think if you look at it and say it doesn't take a lot of land, as you, as you know, some of the farmers... Uh, Yep. Um, you know, that on a few acres of land, they can support a, a family, but it's very intensively managed operation. So I think you have to rethink what kind of farm that you want. Um, Absolutely. Many of us are it.
1: starting to just grow vegetables and, and even quick succession vegetables. Right. Because then you can figure out how to make money yeah. on an acre. And, you know, you can do it, but it really kind of rules out the idea of integrating livestock yeah. on that acre. And, you know, the idea yeah. of a holistic thinking for yeah. a farm, which is really a shame.
0: Yeah, I think if you can find a farmer, kind of an older farmer that still has the values of family farms, and and you could work out a a long-term leasing arrangement of some sort that you could get a piece of land and then you could work your way in and and be on that land for some period of time. But I think, again, uh, if you approach that strictly on an economic basis, then it's probably not going to work. But if you can find a landowner that shares your ethical, social values of trying to recreate a sustainable family farming kind of agriculture and they have an opportunity to contribute in their later years to helping you to make that happen. So again I think it's it's getting beyond that that um, thinking about well this is just purely a, an economic acquisition we're making here and so somehow or other we have to come up with enough money to to buy it or enough money to pay a competitive lease price on it or something of this nature. And so I think we have to look for opportunities but we really need to change change public policy so that we give people access to land. I've, I think one of the ways to, to do that would be to, you know, to, to permanently zone agricultural land to be used in a sustainable agricultural kind of system. And I, I think you'd say, well, you'd have to compensate people, let's say, for have a much higher value if you were going to do that, like we do with land trusts. But I think if you took it on the other hand and said, anytime land is zoned up, you're basically zoning down from kind of the speculative uh, ability to use farmland now as a long-term investment to having to use it as a source of income. So that's kind of zoning down. If if everywhere you took a piece of land on the urban fringe somewhere that where you're expanding out into the countryside and you said, that's going to be zoned up from agriculture to residential commercial. The the landowner didn't do anything to deserve that increase in income or increase in wealth that come from that. That was a grant from society. Society said, okay, you can use it here. Now you can use it in a different way. You didn't do anything to increase the value of the land or anything. We, We ought to be taxing away a big part of that unearned Kind of increase <laughs> in radical, wealth. That's radical,
1: John. I know,
0: but we ought to be <laughs> but doing I, that. I
1: totally agree. And then we yeah. ought
0: to we ought to be doing that to compensate people, and then we would have agricultural land, and then you would be able to make a higher return per acre, probably on a smaller operation, if you had a, if you could actually buy it at actual farmland value. But another yeah. thing I think is realistic as well. The biggest obstacle, or one of the really big obstacles, to young farmers today. It is that they can go out as a young family and they can work hard and make it work, but it, they've got children, it's a family farm, and then it comes along and how are we gonna pay for the children's education? Or, or the other thing is that hit you even sooner, uh, particularly when you start having children, how are we gonna pay for healthcare? I, I've said the most important farm policy in my mind to, to get more new beginning farmers is, is to say, okay, let's let's provide everybody out here with uh, at least basic health care so that one of the couple doesn't have to work to get health care. And, and, and let's go back to the way it was that gave me an opportunity to go to a university. At that time, the University of Missouri, there wasn't any, any tuition. Fees were $67.50 a semester. That's, you know, I could come up yeah. with that. I could work my way through college. So if, yeah. if we had a way so that your their children could go through college and, you know, grew up on a farm, you can probably still work your way through if you didn't have to pay for the fees and didn't have to pay for tuition and all this sort of stuff. And you have give, give farm families, basic health care, um, you know, that are in the occupation. And you did away with those two major drains on income then all of a sudden these smaller farming operations become a lot more economically feasible uh, yeah so and the we,
1: Affordable Care Act did a lot of that yeah. uh, that that was a great start
0: yeah so we just gotta we, we got to think about something differently I guess my main mission in my old age is to say it's not all about economics so we've got to think of, of other ways of of achieving what needs to be done that breaks this sort of paradigm. Well, if it doesn't pencil out, if it's not more profitable, if it doesn't work economically, then we can't do it. So we don't even look for alternatives, we don't even try. Um, right. And, and, you know, I tell people that that is the fundamental cause of the problem. I could go down the list of every major problem we're confronting and it's because we give a priority to economic efficiency, productivity, profitability, and we end up compromising our relationships with each other, our social values, we end up destroying the natural resources, degrading the soil, and, and we do all of that in the name of economic progress. That's not progress. We, yeah, we have, we to have turn... this
1: mentality of cheaper is better.
0: Yeah. And we've right. got to turn it around and say, what we're here for is to take care of each other and take care of the earth. and. Economics allows us a, a more efficient means of, of, of getting the economic n- uh, means of, of accomplishing those objectives. The, the economy is simply nothing more than an inform, I mean an impersonal means of, of interacting with each other in a way to meet our needs. If we go back to self-sufficiency, totally alone, in the woods, by ourselves, whatever, we don't need an economy. it's us in nature. So there's no economy. Now, if we want to go beyond that, then we've got to have family. We've got to have friends. We've got to relate to other people. But if, if we just meet our needs with people that we know by working together or bartering or trading or whatever, we have a personal economy, but we don't need money, we, everything. So when we think of economics today, we think of what I call the transition, I mean, transaction economy. And, and that. That is simply where we were able to buy and sell things rather than do things for other people and they do things for us. And that allows us to meet our needs that are very important needs, even the basic needs uh, by by getting things from people we don't know and we'll never know. And we don't know how it's produced. It doesn't matter as long as it meets our needs. And as long as it fits that sort of impersonal kind of thing, and that's, that's where the that's where the, the, what the economy is. It's simply a means of allowing us to meet needs, our basic human needs and, and wants beyond that, through impersonal means rather than personal means or rather than doing it ourselves. The, the economy actually creates nothing of value other than, than, other than allowing us to, to realize the value of somebody else uh, so, what somebody else has produced that we don't even know. But it's nothing more than allowing us to transition that. And we've allowed this sort of economic thing to take priority over over our relationships with each other and taking care of the earth and various other things. And until we we get over that and see economics as simply a means of meeting our needs, it's not what we're trying to do. Making money is not our objective.
1: It sounds like you're talking about holistic thinking and really envisioning a world that we want to live in. That's a good quality right. of life for all of us. And then making decisions to get to that end goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I have a question because I, I do a lot of that. And in my own life, uh, you know, I have, there's a dairy down the road that I trade milk right. for vegetables and I, I feel like it's a drop in the bucket. And I'm curious right. if we need to do more.
0: Right. Right. I, I do too. Uh, but I think what we're doing now is is that we're kind of developing alternatives to what's out there today. And I think that's a that's a very important thing to do. And again, there's all kinds of advantages of being old. You know, you can remember when things weren't like they were. But, but you know, there's, there's a lot of people out here that can remember when I first got involved in the sustainable agriculture movement back in the late 1980s is kind of when I got involved, and there's people in the organic movement that are there a long time before. All that hasn't gone away. Whenever we first started talking about sustainable agriculture, nobody knew what it was, and we talked about low-input sustainable agriculture, and we were talking about going back to farming with a hoe and using fish heads for fertilizer and things like that. Everybody was making fun of it, And, and the corporations didn't want anything to do with it, and they said it was all... You know, just being pessimistic and so. On. Well, well, here we are, uh, thirty years later, and every big corporation has a sustainability program. Yeah. Uh, you know, organic agriculture got so popular that the industrial agriculture wanted to take it over. So, so that's grown in popularity. The local food movement. You know, all of that growth came in the '90s, and it's kind of leveled off in terms of farmers' markets. But I think. The main thing here is that, that local foods is kind of moving into the future by going online and, and having food hubs and, and people are coming together. And I think that's one of the keys we could talk about. But the biggest obstacle, I think, out here is how do we re, rebuild those relationships that we abandoned you know, when we went to the exchange economy out here. But, but my point is, th- this movement has grown. It may still be small, uh-huh. but I go back again to my childhood. We had local markets. I'd say 80-90% of our food came from within 50 miles of, of our farm. A good bit of we grew on the farm, but we had local flour mills and local canneries and local uh, meat packing plants and, and all of those things were in the communities. There was a town of Springfield about 40 miles away. It was the largest place, but you know, if you went as far as Springfield, you could find about anything in the way of food that came to the yeah. local grocery store and where we bought it and this sort of thing. There weren't any uh, supermarkets. So I can remember when the first supermarket came to Marshfield, a Piggly Wiggly store, where people actually went in and got the stuff off of the shelves themselves. You know, we just took in a grocery list to the grocery store, and they'd go back and do it. And that was revolutionary, shelf. huh? Yeah.
1: So, and then the, <laughs> so we in. can do it. Is your point? It doesn't have to be a yeah. drop in the bucket because we've done it before, and well, we're even the, smarter yeah. now.
0: The point I wanted to make here is, is we made that transition from that local, which I would say close to sustainable family farming system. We made that whole transition in 40 to 50 years. And and it all happened basically between the years of the 60s and 90s or late 50s and late 90s, you know, that period of time. We made that whole transition because the food system hasn't really changed that much in the last 20 years. After it got taken over by corporations, they just get bigger and do things faster and all of that. But the basic nature of it hasn't changed all that much. But what I'm getting at is the, the, industri- the sustainable agriculture, organic, permaculture, now the various things that all have the same thing. They're much further along now than the industrial agriculture, industrial food system was when I was a, actually a teenager. Uh, I can remember in grade school, industrial agriculture was the steam engine that, that uh, went from farm to farm to uh, pull the threshing machines. Everything else was done with horses. Uh that you know, you look at that old steam engine, you say, that's industrial agriculture. Is that gonna take over farming? <laughs> I mean <laughs> you couldn't think about ploughing a field with a with a steam engine. Uh, so people tend to get too pessimistic because they think things can't change, but things are always changing. What we have to do is is just try to do our best to make those changes positive rather than negative.
1: Okay. So I'm curious what policies, you know, I I understand that I can do personal, make personal choices, but what what policies can we enact to to kind of make a bigger impact? Uh, And I'm actually curious what policies we have been enacting to make industrial agriculture rise to the point that it has as well.
0: Well, I think that's the one thing that a lot of people don't understand. Industrial agriculture is tremendously efficient. You know, it it applies that uh, industrial model of specialized, standardized, consolidate into larger and larger operations. I'd, I'd probably make a farm work like a factory, and fields and feedlots work like biological assembly lines. But the thing is, it, it's efficient, but it's very fragile. It, it, it lacks resilience, and the COVID-19 crisis has really revealed that, where it's plain to see, for anybody that looks at it, this, this big system is built just like an assembly line, basically, that goes all the way from plant genetics and animal genetics all the way through the to the retail grocery store and the restaurant. It, it's all just lined up. You, you used to talk about, you know, competitive markets and this sort of thing. Most of the markets, we used to have uh, farm level markets and wholesale markets. And, and I mean, yeah, wholesale markets, retail markets, the whole range of markets that coordinate. It, it's all coordinated now by big corporations that decide what the genetics are how it's going to be produced, a lot of it's produced under comprehensive contracts, how it's going to be processed, everything is lined up. So you've got an assembly line full of, of grain and particularly what we saw in livestock because they're perishable. You've got an assembly line full of, of, of product coming, starting with the breeding animals and starting with the genetics and it's moving through that system. And if you disrupt that system at any point, then it's, the whole system collapses. We see the same thing on the farms, getting back to, let's say, farm policy out here. You go to these bigger operations, specialized, one commodity, big feedlots of single species of livestock. They're carrying out an industrial operation in a very risky sort of natural environment. They do what they can. That's the reason they're taking organics into hydroponics. They're trying to get away from nature. But but it's a very risky kind of system out here. You can have droughts or floods or big straight winds like the derecho that come across Iowa up here. Um, you know, it can come in at any time. And you can have disease outbreaks and crop disease and things of this nature or insects and in animals. You can have disease that wipe out, you know, hundreds of thousands of animals that goes across the country. Well, the only thing that makes that economically feasible from the standpoint of its lack of resilience or its riskiness is that that we, the taxpayer through farm programs, step in and absorb the large share of that risk. And I go back to the 1960s. We really had a transition in farm policy in the 1970s in the uh, uh, Nixon Mm -hmm. administration during that period of time. That's when agricultural economists convinced the policymakers that we had to focus on productivity and efficiency and forget about family farms. But at that time we shifted over and we changed the nature of farm policy. So we started absorbing the risk of this industrial agriculture where it was through uh, price supports or now most of it comes through government subsidized crop insurance we pay. Uh, The last figure I saw more than 60% of the total cost of crop insurance. So there's gonna be huge crop insurance claims across Iowa. And we, the taxpayers, are going to pick up most of the payments, and we're going to pick up virtually all of the administrative costs of putting that money out. We'll have disaster payments on top of that. When you have an outbreak of disease in a big livestock operation, as we've had with layer hens here in Iowa, and we had with uh, uh, small feeder pigs, uh, smaller, then you have the government step in and absorb those. I calculated one time at one point for all of the laying hens that had been lost in this I don't remember what kind of disease it was. Taxpayers were paying about $14 a bird and we were paying to clean up and disinfect the facilities for the people so they could continue to operate in this big operation. So first thing you got to do is we got to recognize that the money that the taxpayer thinks that they're putting out here to support family farms are supporting this industrial system of agriculture. And if you pulled out all all of those supports, all of those subsidies, which you can't do all at one time, that, you know, we don't want to be Cruel and this sort of thing, you you couldn't. This system wouldn't be sustainable. It's it's efficient, but it's fragile. It's like mm-hmm. a, a natural ecosystem that's evolved to the to the greatest point of efficiency. If you pull one species out, the whole system collapses. That's that's kind of what. Where are we going with industrial John, that reminds
1: me of the southern corn leaf blight. I'm a plant pathologist, and in the 70s, do you remember that? All yeah. of the corn had this one gene from, for cytoplasmic yeah. sterility, and it made everything, yeah. even though there were different varieties out there, yeah. it made everything susceptible to that disease. Yeah. So that's the fragility you're talking about.
0: Yeah. So what we need to do now is is we need to start transitioning those funds, and I've been involved with some people that have put together some proposals. That was the... Uh, uh, Data for Progress put together one on regenerative agriculture and the Green New Deal. And all this is consistent with the Green New Deal. But what we proposed in, in that program was, is that we'd say, okay, if farmers that want to transition to sustainable agriculture or regenerative agriculture, you know, organic, this, this whole range, or if you want to start a farm in that area, then then what we ought to do with farm policy is that we ought to ensure those farmers, as long as they're taken care of, they need they need to present a plan which says that we're going to make a transition and we're it's going to take us some time. It's risky to make any kind of a change, but but we're going to you used to talk about parity prices, and that's why we got into price supports when we we're actually supporting family farms. What I'm talking Will about you is parity. What
1: parity is? Most people don't know what parity yeah. is. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> right. but well, I'll, you, I'll I'll get into that uh, next, but. But what we need is to ensure parity incomes for those farmers that are making the transition. It's, they're, they're doing something for the benefit of society as a whole and for future generations. And there's no reason we shouldn't be using funds now that we're subsidizing industrial agriculture with because it didn't feed the hungry and it's not producing good food and a whole lot of things. And we need to, to, to absorb the risk of that transition by ensuring those families a, a parity income with non-farm families in that particular area. And this would allow a lot of these young people that we were talking about a while ago, if you implemented a policy like that, and they would go out and then if they had a, a bad year during the early years of that, that they knew that the, that their income would be made up. And I propose doing it through the income taxes, like we do uh, uh, earned income tax credits. And that's been was proposed by uh, Richard Nixon and... Uh, uh, Milton Friedman and all those people talk about negative income tax and that sort of thing. That's that's basically what I'm talking about. So if you have a shortfall, then instead of you know subsidizing big crop producers, what you go in and you make up that shortfall and you could file your estimated taxes on a quarterly, monthly basis and you are running low, then you'd get a supplement. And then if you're running high, then you'd make a payment. So you mm-hmm. could go through the year like that. But you'd have to be making the transition to uh, more sustainable agriculture systems. And this would allow a lot of people to you know to get a foothold and to come in and and to define the system. So I think this is one of the sort of more radical policies that, that I proposed but uh, or it has been proposed. But it but it's along this line. I mean you talked about uh, parity parity prices while well. ago. when they first brought in parity it was back during <coughs> back during the great depression years and you know farming was in really bad shape and at that time something like 30% of the people were farmers or something and so when the farmers is in bad shape and, you know not only can they not feed society but it's a big impact on the overall economy and, and so what they did which a lot of people don't realize is is they said rather than just support the 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 families directly what they would do is they would calculate a price for all the different agricultural commodities that that would that would give families a livable income. And part of the parity index is the cost of living, the cost of living on the farm. So it was all about calculating farm revenue relative to farm cost of living so that the farm families would have a decent you know, way to stay on the farm and continue to feed their families and have a reasonable level of prosperity. So it was all about supporting the income of farm families to begin with. Then over time, those programs got distorted to where they simply supported commodities rather than focusing on supporting the families. And then when they did that, the commodity prices, parity commodity prices, got so far out of line with what it took to support a family on the farm at that time because of all the, the new technologies and the abilities of farmers to produce much more per person and much more per family, got so far out of line that they began to have to You reduce the parity price and then somewhere along the line, they still include cost of living in the parity calculations, but farmers have basically lost the concept of parity income and now it's all about supporting prices. And as long as we subsidize and support prices, and most farmers don't even like to think about this, you make it possible for the big farm operations to outbid and to drive the smaller family farms out of business. If they don't have to take the risk, it's just like big banks. The the big banks, whenever something goes wrong there, like it did in 2008, 2009, the government steps in and picks up the the pieces. So what we're doing in agriculture, basically, we're subsidizing the big operations at the expense of the small
1: ones. Could you unpack, too, and I learned this from you, and it's probably one of the most disturbing things I've ever learned. Um, So I I want everybody to know this, but when when we seem to have overproduction or right now we've got a glut of milk, even in the organic industry, we have a glut of organic milk. What happens is the industrial operations tend to expand and produce more during this time. Would you explain why they do that and how they're able to do that?
0: Yeah. Uh, to begin with, and I, I know this for sure how it happened in port because I was in Missouri at that time and we had uh, what's called a mail-in records program, and we had enough hog producers in Missouri at that time that we knew what the kind of the family farming hog operations, what their cost of production were, and so on. And, and there's a wide range of cost of production among typical farms out here. So we could calculate the most efficient, one-third, the least efficient, and the, and the one-third in the middle. So when the big operations wanted to come into Missouri, Premium Standard Farm was the n- first one that went into North Missouri. When they wanted to come in, they, they shared their cost information with the people in the Extension Service, the University of Missouri, because they wanted the university to help promote, you know, their operation. And they were promoting it as a real economic development strategy. It was a depressed area of the state, so we had we knew what they were using as a feasibility study. In fact, one of, one of the people in my department, which made it. Uh, you know, very touchy for me, (laughs) had developed a report which is basically promoting corporate hog farms as a a rural community development strategy. Uh, So somebody that I was working with asked me to take a look at that report and I did and I compared how many people would be employed and how much money they would make in, in this feasibility study for the industrial operation. I compared that to our actual records of the family farmers, hog farmers in Missouri. And my conclusion was is that we were going to displace three independent Missouri hog farmers for every job that we created in these industrial, mm. in these industrial operations. But okay, so, so why do they continue to come in? Well, they were more efficient than the least efficient third, up to about a half of our independent producers. So they could come into the market and then they could outcompete them and stay longer and, and they would eventually be forced out of business the other part that a lot of people didn't look at is that once you have that portion of the market that you either own like premium standard farm actually owned owned the facilities or you've got it under contract then you've got an assured flow of product regardless of what's happening in in the other other part of the market so when you get in a period of Price uh, cycles. Agricultural prices have always been cyclical. I was a livestock marketing specialist, so we used to study those things. So you get a period of oversupply, which is typical in milk. Is typical. It used to be typical in hogs and chicken and everywhere. You get an oversupply. What usually happens is you lower the price, wholesale price. The packers would lower the wholesale price because they've got more product to move. They need to move it. They'll lower the wholesale price, retailers lower the retail price. And so you move that product through the market at a at a lower price, and eventually the prices come back up. But what you do if you've got a lot of product under contract is, is you just lower the prices, your wholesale price or retail, low enough to move your product through the market, but not low enough to clear the whole market. And then you can even continue to expand over under those situations because you can bring in new contract producers if you want to and 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 so you continue to you either continue to expand or just stay tight during that period of time until you drive out You know another 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the independent producers And then you can loosen up the market and then you go to the independent producers and you say okay If you want to survive sign a contract with us or you just simply replace the ones that you put out of business with your own operations they learned that in the chicken business um, there were some restrictions on, it was a little bit different in, in beef, but it's exactly what happened in hogs and that's what's happening in dairy. Once they get, the big operations get a, a foothold into the market, then they they use that in times of surplus. They know that what they can do during these periods of time, they continue to expand, which keeps pressure on the independent producers and eventually you force the independent producers out. Now, I don't know if that's where we are in the dairy business now, but in the late 90s, I'm sure you still hear people talk about when you had hog prices, $8, $9 a hundred weight. They hadn't been that low since the Great Depression. That wasn't the market price. That was squeezing basically the last of the commercial independent producers out of business. We may be there on dairy right now where this is a this is an intentional expansion, even if they're just breaking even in the short run because they're positioning themselves to take the rest of the market so they have that assembly line for dairy that they've already got for hogs and already have for chickens. They, they want large operations that can deliver tr- trailer truck loads of milk, tanker truck loads of milk. They don't want to deal with any farmer that can't operate at that level, and those plants are set up to receive so many of these tankers every day, and they have to keep them coming continually. Can't depend on the independent family farmers that may go out of business or may not, or whatever. You got to keep those tankers moving, and so that means you have to control the whole system. And so there's tremendous benefits as far as them, their their shareholders, gaining control of the system, even if they lose money. And the other thing is, is once you begin to narrow down the number of corporations that are left, and we've seen that in Dairy Now. It becomes a contest between the survivors and the and the independent producers are just collateral damage when that starts. You have one big corporation trying to take market share away from the other big corporation or drive it out of the market or drive it into bankruptcy, and the independent producers are just collateral damage as these two big corporations fight to control. A bigger and bigger share of the market. So you know, I'm an agricultural economist, a livestock marketing specialist for 15 years plus. Uh, I don't know why economists are not leveling with people. Agricultural economists aren't leveling with people. This isn't the working of a free market. This is the working of uh, some sort of of a monopoly form or oligopoly, or I'm not even sure that there's any definition for it in in economics. I'm not sure. It, it's basically central planning by corporations. You know, the big corporations claim we're a free market system. We just want, you know, we just want to be able to compete and all this kind of stuff. But it's, it's basically the big corporations performing all of the function that used to be for, performed by a series of open competitive markets, reaching all the way from the retail back to the farm level. And we no longer have that. We have somebody big corporate operations. I think increasingly it's going to be the retailers, the big Walmarts and people like that, Costco's and the various others that are going to control that whole system. Historically, it's been the processors that controlled it. So that's, that's the, the reason you see things happening that don't seem to make sense is because they don't make economic sense, but they do make financial sense.
1: Yeah. And when you talk, I mean, I want to cry for all the farms right. that are lost in a beautiful way of life. But at the same time, we haven't even touched on the external costs that these large Insultant. industrial operations inflict. Could you touch on that?
0: Yeah. And, and the thing is, and, and this goes back to kind of the real organic sort of thing, is that there's two different conflicting worldviews that are going on here. The one that came out of the, the traditional family farms and the and the organic movement and sustainability movement, and now the regenerative movement, and that sort of thing, is that is that the world is a, a big living system, and that uh, farms and farmers and and the living things in the soil and the plants and the animals are all part of this this big organism, and that the, even the farmer and the farm family, I would argue, and the community is all a part of that, and so you know we as a human species here, we're just one of many. Now, like every other species out here, we try to tip the ecological balance in our favor. We want to modify the environment so we get a little bit more out of it. But but unlike other species, other species basically in healthy natural ecosystems, they have limits to how far they can go. Something else will come in and their predators will come in and, and knock them off if they become too plentiful or things of that nature. So we don't have that kind of balance in here. So what we did is be, because we humans kind of have this extra ability, and we don't have these natural constraints because of our technology. And, and I don't <clears throat> some I don't want to say superior knowledge. I'm not sure that we're, we're that smarter than a lot of these other things out here that, that we think of as dumb. But we we created back in the in the period of the Enlightenment this mechanistic view of the world, that the world is actually a big, complicated, sophisticated machine. But if we're just intelligent enough, we can learn how that machine functions, we can take it apart and look at the pieces, kind of a reductionist approach to science. We look at the pieces, we figure out how that machine works, and then we can manipulate it. And so all of these living things out here, the plants, the animals, the things in the soil, whatever, we can manipulate them and if we can't figure out how to manipulate them, we'll just just annihilate and replace them with some other technology or something of this nature. And, and so that's, that's this kind of industrial system kind of evolved out of that mechanistic view of the world. That the farm, as I mentioned before, and we used to tell farmers that, you know you got to make the farm work like a factory without a roof. And fields and feedlots are just biological assembly lines. So you have to control those natural processes so that you can make them function like you want them to. And that's what I was talking about, the assembly line and the food system. It's that mechanistic view that we can manipulate and control and anything we don't need, we can just kill off and replace with a synthetic pesticide or fertilizer or, or a machine. Or if we don't like the way things are constructed by nature, then we can reconstruct them through genetic engineering or something of that nature, and we'll, we'll make it all function much more efficiently and we'll be in control of it. So that's, that's what's driving kind of the industrial system. And to the extent that it, you know, that it works and the system's more efficient, but in the process, nature isn't a big machine as we're finding. And and when we do things to nature, nature always reacts. It's not like a machine that you, you take a part off and you throw it away. It doesn't do anything. Nature's going to come back at you when you do anything to it. And that's what we call the unintended consequence of industrial agriculture. And you can look across wherever we are and we see the erosion of the soil and depletion of the natural productivity of the soil and pollution of the air and the water with agriculture with biological and chemical waste and a whole range of things that in the process of making food cheaper let's say okay we're going to make more money or we're going to feed more food to people we end up basically creating an environment in which the people can't live a healthful life even if they had good food to eat and, and besides that, we end up producing food that's lacking in the basic nutrients that were in that soil and, and, and depended upon those living organisms that were in the soil to put whatever nutrients were there in the crops. We, we didn't pay any attention to that as long as we could grow more bushels per acre or make the animals grow bigger or whatever. And we ended up with foods then that aren't making people healthy, that aren't providing food security um you know we talk about we we're not even feeding the hungry but the people particularly the lower income people that can buy enough to eat they're ending up buying the cheap food foods of the industrial system uh that's we've created an epidemic of obesity and diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and whole range of cancers and, and that's a consequence of not paying attention to the health in the process, just focusing on economic efficiency and how we manipulate the system and then we think, well, we can manipulate the medical system, and if we make all those people sick, then we'll find some way to sell them medicine and give them a cure and all of that it's just but it's all that worldview that somehow we can manipulate this thing and make it work and and we're still driving that when we talk about the issue of climate change, probably the most money and the biggest investments are in how do we manipulate nature now so that we deal with climate change. And a lot of farmers don't like it when I say it, but I'm just saying just going out and pay farmers to put carbon back in the soil. That's that mechanistic thing. You're you're dealing with nature and what you're going to do is pay somebody an economic incentive, which is what got us in the problem in the first place. And you're going to say, well, all you have to do is get carbon in the soil. Pretty soon we'll have huge carbon sequestration industrial farming operations that will be reaping millions of dollars of government subsidies to I don't the... trust
1: it either, John. I think that they're gonna rob the carbon from another piece of land and then calculate, you well, know, that... get the gains from this one. I so I don't trust well, the system I think either. They,
0: I think they'll do all of that as well, but I'm just saying <laughs> even if they, even if they even if they could accomplish it. But the problem is and, and this goes back to the food system, that if you have the worldview that this is a living system and that we're a part of it, which I firmly believe it is, and I think that's what real organic is about. It's a, that the farm and the farmer is part of an organism, a community is an organism, and we're in that organ. If If you take that reality and you put a, a mechanistic farming operation in that reality, you're inherently going to create conflicts because the system you're producing food with is in conflict with the larger natural system and the social system within which that system must function, and it has to get all of its productive resources eventually from nature by one means or another. And the purpose of the whole thing is to meet the needs of people. And when you've got a system that's in conflict, with its natural resource base, where it's going to get all of its resources, sustainability only is going to depend upon solar energy and green plants to collect it and that sort of thing. When it's in conflict with that, in conflict with the well-being of the people in community and the people that eat the food, then there's nothing you can do to fix the system. You, you have the what you call a wrong paradigm or the wrong worldview. What you have to do then, and I think what all these people were talking about that still remains so small, it's not an easy task, but we have to figure out how do we create agriculture and food systems that function in harmony with that system. We can still tip the ecological balance in our favor relative to other things, just like other species do. But we have to recognize the limits of nature. Because when we we go beyond the bounds that nature set, those laws of nature can't be changed. We didn't create them. We didn't make them. They're they're there. And when, when we go beyond and we, we violate those basic boundaries that are set for us, there are, are going to be negative consequences. And there is nothing we can do about it. We can divert it from here to there, push it here and there, but we, we can't avoid it. And I would argue the same way about human relationships. I think there's a there's a fundamental principles that we're created by about how you maintain positive relationships. And people say, well, you never agree on that. But at the Institute for Global Ethics has come up. They've done surveys and interviews all around the world. And they say, well, there's five basic principles that people agree on. Everybody has all sorts of different values, religious values, things like that. But all ages, nationality, religion, honesty, fairness, uh, responsibility, compassion, and respect. I think if you, if you went down that list, if, if you've got a system that violates, consistently violates those relationships among people, you can't sustain a society. If, if you've got a system that's, that's unfair, dishonest, uh, irresponsible, totally uncaring, uh, disrespectful, you can't you you can't have a society that functions that way. And when you've got an, an industrial food system, or you've got an industrial system, or if you've got any system that functions solely for economic individual self interest, you're going to violate those principles. And, and it can't exist. It, it can't be sustained. So the, the 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 point is is that if we're going to sustain the future of humanity on this planet, that we've got to rethink. How the world works, and where we fit, and how we live our lives. We, we, we've got to come to the reality that we're not in charge here. That we may have special talents that other things don't have, but they have special talents that we may not have. And we need to find our place here. And I believe, you know, the world doesn't make sense and life doesn't make sense unless we're here for some good purpose. And, and that that the way to live well to live a life of virtue or whatever, is to fulfill whatever that purpose may be. And I think if we we focus on how are we going to make it economically feasible for us to do what we see as our role here and our particular place within this whole of reality, then we're going to continue to move toward more sustainable, regenerative, real organic food systems.
1: Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview as well as a full transcript with links related to our conversation can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 28. Please join us next time for the second part of our interview with agricultural economist and family farming champion, hero of mine, John Eichard. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.